Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Let's honor him with our minds right now. I'm going to go ahead and open us in a word of prayer before we get into the message this morning. Lord, uh, we're grateful that we can call you not just our God or the only God, but that we get the chance to call you Father. It's our privilege to do so. And what that means is that wherever it is that we find ourselves in our life right now, we can call on our Father to come to our rescue. And you come. And Lord, you never forsake us and you never leave us. And Lord, um, you always, always have this desire to leverage all of heaven in our direction to aid us in this life. Help us to believe that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, as you know, we walk through series here at Church on the Rock, and uh, typically taking maybe three to six weeks, and we're entering into a new series called Dissatisfied, A Holy Discontent. Um, And as we were talking about this, um, our lead pastor, Jonathan Walker, kind of set the tone for where we needed to go. And basically what he said was, uh, I want you as preachers, as pastors, um, I want you guys to discern what it is that the Lord is calling you to preach to your local congregation regarding the thing that you are a little bit dissatisfied about or that you have a little holy discontent about. And I'm I'm sitting there listening to this and realizing, this has never happened to me. Like he's giving us a soapbox to stand on. So are you ready for this morning? I'm going to give it to you, the thing that I feel dissatisfied about, where I feel like I have a holy discontent about, um, and something that's very, very important to me. Now, as I say that, I have to, I feel like I have to build a little bit of a context, because the Bible is explicit, right? It's very, very clear that we should be characterized as those who are content, not discontent. Like the Bible is clear that one of the works of the Spirit in our lives is that no matter whether we're rich or whether we're poor, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, we have power to be content in this life, which is a huge blessing. Like we can, we can be whatever status or whatever title or lack of title there is in this life, rich or poor, and the, the Bible promises that we can experience a level of contentment. But just like it says that, that's not at all to discount the reality or the idea that as believers, as Christians, there should also be this other side to the coin, the side of discontent. And really, it's not even just something that, that maybe you experience or I experience or we share, but it's something that people who don't know the Lord share. It's a little bit of a discontent about life. In fact, possibly the temperature of the current level of politics in our country could be derived from whatever it is that makes people wholly discontent. Maybe it's injustice or racism or some other form of injustice, right? Um, Inequality, and because of the 
discontent or holy discontent, people are moved to action. Their passion meets up with their purpose, and they decide that they're going to they're go do something about the things that are wrong in the world. And in truth, we would, at this level, say, yes, there is something wrong with the world. There's something wrong with the world that, that frankly, we should be discontent about. This isn't a new idea in the Scriptures, actually, if you read Ecclesiastes. For those of you who know me, you know it's my favorite Old Testament book, Wisdom Literature. Ecclesiastes, it starts with vanity of vanities. There's a holy discontent. There's this sense that, okay, what is there that is good for a man to do or a woman to do or a child to do for that matter? What is it that there is good to do when life promises more than it delivers? What do we do with that? One of my favorite bands out there, U2, some of you guys also like you too. Put it this way. I've spoken with the tongues of angels. I've held the hand of the devil. It was warm in the night. I was cold as a stone. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I believe in the kingdom come then all the colors will bleed into one. I'm not saying this is great theology. I'm just saying it's a cool song, all right? I believe in the kingdom come, then all the colors will bleed into one, bleed into one. Pastor Chris, this is really a song you should sing. We all know you got it. But yes, I'm still running. There's a tension there. You broke the bonds and you loosed the chains, carried the cross. We know who he's talking about. Um, of my shame, oh my shame, you know I believe it. But you know the chorus, don't you? But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Can you relate to that in any way, shape, or form? I know we're in church and you're a Christian and so you're not supposed to, but could you? Actually, is he actually drawing on something that is real? That we are supposed to draw out? I mean, Jesus saves us and he empowers us, but friend, if you haven't figured this out, we are not in heaven yet. And there is still something to run for and there's still something we're looking for. And until we see Jesus face to face, that race is not over. It is not complete. And there still are things that are wrong in this place. And I think Jesus wraps this idea of what it means to be discontent actually through a positive statement when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's going to do his great work. We call it the Passion of the Christ. He's going to the cross and he's praying. And he says, right, Father, would your will be done on earth? as it is in heaven, like, it's not always being done. It's not always happening the way it should happen. And that we actually need to have this holy discontent where we say, whatever it is that's supposed to happen, or whatever it is that is happening in heaven that is perfect, would you bring it here in this moment? Because we need it. We need more heaven. Someday we will be with Jesus then we can stop running. But until then, the, there is this sense where we should be both content and wholly discontent. I think the Apostle Paul 
when he launches out into his missions in Acts 17, listen to what he's discontent about. New Testament here, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was, here it is, deeply distressed when he saw the city was full of what? Don't miss this. Paul was not setting up a new Jerusalem on earth. He had left Jerusalem. He was heading out. He was where the Gentiles were. He was where religious people feared to tread. And in the midst of that, he encountered idols. And he didn't ignore the idols and he didn't hide from the idols. This one verse could undo a thousand years of monasticism. See, what he's actually suggesting is that the idolatry wasn't to be something that should be feared, but that it was something that was to elicit a response of holy discontent. Are you kidding me? You're still worshiping idols. Do you know there's something better for you? Here it is. And he went toward them, not away from them. So here's what I want to talk about as a result. The thing... When I reflect on what is it that makes me discontent? What is it that I'm dissatisfied about? That when I look at the thing, I go, is there anything that can be done? Is there any way that I could participate? God, is there any gift that I have? Is there any discipline I need to build into my life so that I can turn the tide? You know what I'm talking about? That's what we're talking about, a holy discontent. For me... It's evident. It's spiritual drift. Now I get across all of our campuses, we're going to be talking about different things. And this isn't the only thing in my life. (laughs) In fact, there's a lot of things that we could talk about that are incredible things. At some point, the preacher, window into my life, a preacher has to look at his week and he goes, okay, out of the 27 things I really want to talk about, What's the one thing, God, that you're doing this Sunday? And I don't ever know. I just asked a question. And this is the thing that emerged. And so I'm praying that it's something here that will also connect with something in your life, okay? But here's the thing that has emerged, and as I look at it, it's not, it's not peripheral for me in my life. It's something that has actually strengthened the course of my life is this recognition I grew up with growing up in California, <clears throat> mean streets of red in California. It was a cow town. And realizing that it was already post-Christian. And that the Christians that were there, although God was at work and good things were taking place, that when, where I grew up in my context, I was the only Christian who attended church regularly that I knew of in my context at the time. And for those who grew up with me, I could go down the list and I could say there are very few of us left that are still following God. It's going to be an uncomfortable morning. And if I go through Bible school, because I got called right by the Lord to preach, I went to Bible school. If I'm going to preach, I better know what I'm talking about. So I, I decided to enter Bible school. Out of those who graduated from Bible school, very few are still in ministry or entered ministry or are continuing in the faith. 
And then I've come to discover 20 years after getting my master's from seminary that many of the people that I walked with through seminary that went through all that effort and spent all that time and money that many of those pastors have been so worn out and so discouraged that they have quit the ministry altogether. Spiritual drift is a problem for us. And I'm just going to say I'm only familiar with it in America. Perhaps it's a problem everywhere. I think it must be. There's a lot talked about it in the scriptures. But it's the thing when I look at it, I go, oh, no. And we can do a lot of things when we think about it, like, so what needs to happen? What do we need to do? Uh, do we need to do another Bible study? <laughs> uh, another life group? Well, of course, you know, I think, yes, always another life group. But at the same time, I look at this and I go, you know what? I know to be true, it doesn't matter what denomination my friends have been a part of. It doesn't matter what theology they landed on or what experiences that they have personally had with the risen Savior. It doesn't seem to matter if they get more information about God or even an experience about God. It's pretty much across the board. There comes a moment, there comes a time where all of us are susceptible to drift spiritually away from Jesus. And we have to take this seriously. Actually, there's been some studies out there that bring this to light, and I'm not going to bore you with the studies, but here's basically what they say from places like Pew and Barna and other research organizations, that one of the reasons, and particularly my generation on down, has kind of walked away from the faith, is that there are too many rules, um, there's too much politics in the church, imagine that, um, and there's, there's too much, you know, talked about money, and it's kind of just like, it feels like a scam sometimes, like maybe more of a pyramid scheme. And I look at that and I say, well, that's what the experts say, and maybe, but that junk is everywhere. Like if that's the case, if that's really why people are leaving the church, leave society, because it's everywhere. Is that really at the heart of why it is that my people have decided this isn't any longer working for them, by and large. And the numbers are growing exponentially, especially since COVID. I think maybe there is something deeper. I think maybe those are real, but they're peripheral. I think maybe there's something deeper underneath the surface lurking. And I'm going to put this out there. I could be wrong. But then again, it's my soapbox today. Here's, I want to just present this and, and, and tell me what you think, right? Let's have this conversation. I wonder, I wonder if the thing that causes spiritual drift more than anything else in our generation is shame. Romans 1 talks a lot about shame. Now, I want to define it because we talk a lot about shame in our culture here at Church on the Rock in terms of the Lord can release us from our past, release us from our sin, and therefore overcome our shame. Like, we should not have to live with shame anymore. The Lord's forgiveness can deal a final blow to shame in our lives. But I'm talking about a different kind of shame we don't often talk about. It's the kind of shame that comes from the world around us. It's being shamed. And this is the kind of shame that emerges in Romans chapter 1. 
a bunch of Christians in a pagan city, a pagan context, and those Christians are under the gun and they're experiencing what it means to be shamed and to be silenced and to be shut out of society by by the virtue of the fact that they are just a believer in Jesus Christ. And that shame had a certain outward pressure that created an inward crisis. It's one where Paul then raises a standard against, and he says in verse 16 of chapter 1, I want you to know this about me as an apostle of Jesus. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. I don't have time to get into the implications of that, but that's the kind of shame I'm talking about. Are we ashamed because of our new identity and how it impacts our relationships and how we see people perceive us as a result of that new blessed identity. Apparently, this is a problem for the early church, not just here in Romans 1, but at you enter into the Soma experience, School of Ministry Alaska, where I'm teaching hermeneutics, you'll discover this this coming Monday. Uh, and it's that when it comes to historical teaching on how we address the Bible or interpret the Bible, about the second to third century, we begin being ashamed of the Bible itself. And when things became embarrassing or hard to understand, we allegorized or spiritualized the text to make it more palatable and a whole new form of interpretation started to happen. We didn't think it was appropriate to talk about the Song of Solomon in its real light as, you know, a fairly sexually explicit book. It didn't seem spiritual or religious enough. It gave us a bad name in the community. Love feasts? Who wants that to be a part of what we do in any of our events, right? So we reinterpreted those things through some spiritual lens. We made them sound different and more acceptable to the world around us. It was a way, really, of overcoming shame. Doubt can also be a part of how we try to overcome shame. Where we just say, well, I'm not certain anymore that's really what it means, or that's really what it says, or that's really what my life should be ruled by. But we know this about shame. You all know this about shame because we've all experienced it. Whether it's shame because of a sin or whether it's shame because of some pressure from the outside, some shame that's tried to be placed on us, here's what we know from Genesis. Whenever there's shame, our gut instinct is to hide. It's the battle. This is the battleground. Our instinct is to hide. We become what many have called closet Christians. Oh, we still believe, we just don't believe very boldly out there. It seems safer. We become passive onlookers. In the passage that we're going to look at here this morning in Hebrews chapter 12, it was a little bit different. It, it wasn't that they were really struggling with allegory or, or even doubt, although that was lingering there. And it wasn't even that they were trying to hide, although I'm sure that plays a role as well. There's something else that takes place when shame is, well, when we're shamed. For them, they begin to look backwards instead of forwards. It's a simple thing to do. 
They begin to long for the good old days. And for them, for these Hebrew Christians, these Jewish believers, the good old days were the days of Judaism. And it may or may not be something that you can relate to, but was very, very powerful pull backwards because to become a Christian was to be ostracized from your immediate and your extended family and your sense of national identity. It would be like all of a sudden you became known as un-American. Somebody that shouldn't work because you would be toxic. And as a result, everything that you had built your life on began to crumble away. It was a kind of overwhelming, overarching shame. Shame is interesting because it, it isn't just something that, that, well, it isn't just something that is there consistently, but it lurks, it creeps around, and then it launches its attack at you at your weakest moment. And here, when it comes to our connection with our family, our most close relationships, the people who should be our allies, our countrymen, this is where shame crept into these first, second century Christians. They begin longing for what was past, and they thought maybe this isn't real, maybe it's not worth it, and maybe we should return to Judaism. That's interesting because, because it's in this moment here that the writer of Hebrews calls them out and he, he brings a statement to bear on their lives. It's this. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go outside the camp. It's a big statement in Hebrews. I want you to go outside the camp. What does that mean? Outside the camp is where you threw the carcass after sacrifice. Outside the camp was a place of defilement. Outside the camp was where Jesus was crucified, our sacrifice. Outside the camp is where he died and was defiled by our sin. Outside the camp is where Jesus was and it's where the Jews viewed Jesus. It was the worst possible place. It was an unholy place to them. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, actually, if you want to overcome your shame, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go outside the camp. I actually want you to go live in the place of shame where Jesus lives. It's an interesting thought. I want you to go out there and I want you to be with him because Jesus is outside the camp. I want you to bear his reproach. It's interesting to me because these are the people who have tasted the kindness of the Lord and the powers of the age to come, just like you and me. And yet these very same people were now being tempted because of the outward shame to return to a darker place. We could all be susceptible to this. I mean, don't we understand this? Every time I hear that message about the Apostle Peter denying the master who bought him, every time I go, that's me. Don't you? Every time. Every time I realize that's in me. That even though I've tasted the kindness of the Lord and all the powers of the age to come, doggone it, at the end of the day, sometimes the manna gets old in the wilderness. 
Sometimes I wonder if it's really worth it all. Sometimes I have doubts. I was riding to school the other day with my son. He turned to me. I won't tell you which one. And he asked me a very honest question. He said, Dad, I just want you to know, sometimes I have doubts. And of course you know what I did. I said, Can you, are you, don't you know I'm a pastor? You can't have doubts. No, what I do? I said, you know, I completely understand. I have doubts too. In fact, it's through acknowledging those doubts that I have discovered more truth and I'm more resilient spiritually than I've ever been as a result. And God is not at all afraid of your doubts. But we've got them. We've got them. And we're being called, and they're being called now to kind of fess up to it and then to go outside the camp to actually live in the place of shame. That's something supposed to happen there. So in chapter 11, the author gets in the huddle with them. He gives them a pep talk. And he says this to them. He says, he says, I want you to know something. In the midst of all this shame, I want you to remember, you're looking at your present circumstances, but I want to give you a bigger picture. I want you to go backwards, but not back to Judaism, back to the fact that from the very beginning, from the very beginning, there have been people of faith who've endured suffering greater than yours. And they did it successfully. And I want you to learn from them. I want you to tell their stories. So he tells their stories. It's the story of faith being lived out by ordinary people who end up doing extraordinary things as a result. We're going to circle back around to that here in a minute. But he says, listen, there are people, I just want you to know, there's a category of people who experienced all the shame and then some that you are experiencing but instead of shrinking back, they persevered in faith all the way to the very end. And I want you to know it's possible. And then he launches into the ultimate example, the ultimate illustration. The illustration we should all be looking to if we want to also persevere in faith, even under the weight of the shame that people try to throw onto us. And he takes us to a principle he likens the Christian life to the, the, the race of endurance. The race of endur endurance. The fact of the matter is, it appears as though we are in a race. And I'm going to borrow a quote from Jim World. I don't know who came up with this, but it's my way of describing the way endurance works or what endurance is or even how it works in the Christian life. Here's the principle of endurance. What seems impossible today will one day become your warm-up. Put that in the context of getting up and doing exercise. In other words, just like if we continue to exercise, we will grow stronger. If we continue to persevere, we will actually establish the boundaries of our faith. They will be enlarged. What was a big battle today will be tomorrow's warm-up episode. The faith is not static, it's dynamic, it's growing. And so we're supposed to endure in an effort to build our faith. 
That endurance seems to be the illustration that the writer of Hebrews wants us to sink our teeth into. That endurance itself has a kind of fruit in our lives that helps us to bear up under shame. That's where I'm going. So the writer gets very specific and he compares the Christian life to this race of endurance in chapter 12. And here's what he says. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. What's he saying? He's saying, I want you to look back to all of the people who have come come before, who have run this race, the race you're running successfully, and I want you to look to them and to their example. He's not actually saying that they're watching us. He's saying that we have the privilege of watching them. And as a result, we can learn something from their behavior and how they acted and what they did to be successful, specifically under this cloud of shame from the world around. Look at them, they're surrounding us, and then he says, lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares. There's these hindrances, and these are racing terms. Uh, Actually, this illustration was quite remarkable because he's He's hearkening their attention to the races in the Olympics. And everybody knows that the racers in the Olympics ran completely naked. This would have been a scandalous illustration. But he's actually saying, look, I want you to know, if you're going to run successfully, if you're going to win the gold, you got to get naked. You have to strip off anything that hinders you. There's a real sense that there are certain sins in your life that could trap your feet up and could, ex- could ensnare you. And as a result, you got to get rid of them. you got to practice some discipline. Whatever it is, take it off. It's very remarkable and similar to some of the other epistles that talk about taking off the old self and putting on the new self. That there's something that we have to let go of here if we're going to run successfully unhindered says, I want you to know that you're not doing this as an individual either. This is actually a group race. You're part of a community. There's this great cloud of witnesses that surrounds. As you're running, remember the community that you're a part of. Remember grandma and grandpa. Remember their race and how they ran to the very end successfully. Remember the stories of all who have gone before. Tell the stories to one another. It'll encourage your heart. You need to remember that it's possible to move forward and that there's fruit as a result of it. Whatever you do, remove anything that is going to get in your way. Just remove it. I'm not going to go into what all those things might be, but it's in this moment the Spirit of God may be actually picking out something in your life very, very specific, and you know it needs to be removed. This is the moment to remove it. Just give it over to the Lord, strip it off, and strip down before you begin running. And then just keep running. Well, he continues on. He says this, Now, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. This may be a race that we're in with other people, but it is our race. We each have a very specific race, and we're to run that race with endurance. And he gives us some instruction here that's critical to any race. If you're going to run a race, the one thing you can never do, and I ran track in high school, I know this, the one thing you can never do is what? Look behind you. Like, if you look behind you, you will be snaking it all over that track. But you'll definitely slow down. You won't win. 
And he's saying, I want you to do this. I want you to take off every hindrance, and then I want you to keep your eyes fixed on who? Not the people around you. I want you to borrow from the lives of the past and see what God did through their faith, but then ultimately I'm giving you the example. Here's the example, he says. I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? He says it right here because he's the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. In other words, he went before us and he finished the race. That's what he's saying. He's a God who incidentally rolled up his sleeves and jumped into the mess and forged the path upon which we walk. And then he did so successfully. He finished his race. As a result, he is the perfecter of our faith. If you want a perfect example of faith, Look no further than the person of Jesus Christ. He had to live the life that he's asking you and I to live, which is important to note that he wouldn't ask you to do something that he has not already gone before and done. That should give you hope. It keeps hope alive. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. It continues on. For the joy that lay before him, he, and here's the third time it's used, he endured. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. You know that the cross was one of the most despised, shameful ways to die in the Roman world. Roman historians write about it. It was something that no Roman citizen would endure. In fact, if you were a wicked Roman ruler, the one thing that would dethrone you is if you actually put one of your own Romans on a cross. It was like the most vile thing you could ever do. If you want a picture of shame, the cross was the picture of shame to everybody reading this passage. But what did Jesus do with the shame? What's it say? He despised it. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that he despised it? It means he disregarded it. It means, ultimately, he wasn't afraid of it or its consequences. He took an assessment of the situation. He looked at the cross, and then he looked through it to the glory that would follow called joy. And he said, it's totally worthwhile. That's the decision that our Savior made in that moment. He looked at the thing that signified the most shame in life, and he said, it's totally worth it for the joy that is on the other side. I'm totally going to do it. I'm not afraid of it. I don't think that this shame is going to somehow hinder the gospel or this movement. I think it's actually going to be the thing that births the movement. It's going to be the thing that everybody thought was foolishness, but is the wisest decision. And he moved through that cross to the other side. Well, how do we know? Because it says here, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's a principle that emerges. Perseverance and faith brings great reward. James 1 says it this way, Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 
And then it continues on and says this, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, and here's the kicker, lacking nothing. Jesus walked that out. He illustrated that life for us so that when we look at the shame that we have to encounter, the the being shamed, we can look at that and we can say, well, I walked through this door. Well, it's going to cost me something. It's going to cost me something. Yep. But I can look through that to the glory that will be revealed. I can look through that to the reward that Jesus wants to give me I can look through that cross to the thing on the other side, and as a result, I can look at that moment of shame, that great persecution, whatever that thing is, and I can say, it is totally worthwhile. The answer is yes, Lord, every single time. And not just, not just this incredible work of perseverance in my life that has this great reward, but part of the reward is joy itself. Listen to Jude these words, now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. See, God is in it with you. He is not just the God who carried his own cross. He is also a God who is willing to help you carry yours. And he can make you stand instead of stumble. And he can take you to the next level and you can experience Great joy, just like Jesus did. I want you to notice that the writer closes off this part of the discussion with this final thought. Verse 3 of chapter 12. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Once again, the focus is not to consider our race, but to consider his race. If you want to know how to live successfully in this life and not turn to the right or to the left, stop looking at yourself incessantly and begin looking up at Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who ran the race perfectly. I'm going to invite the worship team up. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Which leads me to this final thought. Jesus was given a stage. And on that stage, he made his presentation. He gave his very life away. If we're to consider him for what he did, then he is inviting us to follow him. Exactly the walk that he walked, which means this, you have been given a stage. All of us have been given a stage. Don't walk away. Don't walk. Don't hit the exit. Stay on the stage until the very last act. Stay there because you're a spectacle for the world. If we don't stay on the stage, there is no hope. And it's by staying on the stage that we meet Jesus in a whole different way. He endured. He endured. Did you hear that? The same battles you face, he faced successfully. 
same trial that you experienced, the same shame, oh, probably more shame, probably more than you will ever experience. And beyond Jesus, I mean, there's just so many others. I think, I think as a family, as I apply this to my family, I'm like, okay, God, what is it that I'm doing in my family to build in them the idea that, yes, there's, there's this heavenly gift and there's these powers of the age to come and the kindness of God in their life and grace and mercy. But there's this other theology, right? There's this theology of suffering. If I don't talk about it, if we don't talk about our doubts, if we don't work through those things, then they're just going to be weak. And they're never... I've got to put them in places, in contexts where they're on the stage. I don't know what they're going to do. But I'm praying for them. And I believe they can succeed and they can stand. I think you can too. All the way to the end. We're surrounded by those who have. As a church, we need to tell the stories, don't we? We need to tell these stories. Go back. I challenge you. Go back to your family today. Go back and then remind them of grandma and grandpa. Remind them of that pastor that was four generations ago in your family and what they did. I know they only sang hymns and they read out of the King James. It's a good story anyway. God was at work in those days like he is at work today. And then make a commitment that you too would be found faithful. I believe in making commitments. I believe in verbalizing them. I believe in confessing them before God and before men. Yes, Lord, I will bear up under the load. I will bear up under the pressure. Not because of my might, but because of yours. Stay with me. Stay here. Keep me on stage. And if that's not you, I want to challenge you with this. I want you to know, really, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you wouldn't be passive because, guys, I, we can't afford to be passive. We can't afford to be onlookers. I'm praying that you would be dissatisfied <laughs> and holy, discontent. Lord Jesus, as we gather our hearts now to worship you, would you move? Would you move? Amen. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.